0: Do you want a politically incorrect gateway to a real history education? Then go to mclanahanacademy.com. That's com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. episode 130. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Took a little week off and I'm glad to be back behind the microphone. So before we get started, just want to remind you of all the regular stuff. If you like this podcast, please share it around on social media. You can find me on social media on Facebook at Brian McClanahan, on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. And of course on YouTube, you can subscribe to my YouTube page. Just go out and look for Brian McClanahan. If you don't want to go out and search for all those things, you can go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com and you'll find all my social media buttons at the top of the page click on those and it'll take you right to them also when you're on my web page you can go give me an email address and i'll give you a free ebook forgotten founders in american history and also a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly and you'll get an email from me every now and then also just want to remind you that i do have if you have not spent out all of your dough on Black Friday, I have my McClanahan Academy, and my deals on that will run through the end of December. So you can get my course on secession, which is timely because it seems like every day I'm getting another email about secession in one way or another. You can get that class for 25 bucks right now. It's a steal of a deal, and you can also get my course on Hamilton. In my, uh, which covers my book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. You can get that class for half off, 36 bucks right now. So quite a deal. Go on out to brianmcclanahan.com, or you can go to mcclanahanacademy.com. Uh, that's the way to find the McClanahan Academy. And uh, subscribe and get those classes. It's, again, through the end of December, you've got the deal uh, that gives you a little bit off on the secession course and half off on the Hamilton course. Uh, okay, so um, I want to talk about a an article that was sent to me over my break and uh, several times, in fact. And it it's uh, from a Mises from from actually Mises.org, and a lot of people sent this to me saying they're surprised about this article, and so I'm going to cover some of the things in it today, and it very gently refute some of these things because uh, I, the the article was written uh, by um, uh, a podcaster Chris uh Chris Carlton. and I actually like his his uh, podcast it's uh, it's good his his format is good his presentation is good I think it's it's well produced uh and so I I think it's an interesting podcast uh but of course this topic has raised a lot of discussion in fact if you go to the to the uh page where he wrote a further explanation of his position you can see it's been commented on well over 100 times and so it's received a lot of discussion, and so I was asked to comment on it, and I will. I think that uh, it's an important discussion to have, and I think he gets a few things wrong in his particular, uh, in his, in his, in his uh, discussion here, and, and uh, his further explanation, and I, some things need to be corrected. And so, first and foremost, first of all, the title of the piece is, Did Tariffs Really Cause the American Civil War? Now. I'm going to say this from the beginning. Uh, I'm going to correct correct some of the errors in this little piece. Number one, but number two, to say that tariffs, just tariffs, singularly, is an issue here. I think is oversimplistic. Um, no one, well, I can't say no one. There are some people that go out and say simply tariffs caused the war. Uh, but that is an overly simplistic look at a larger issue. The issue is political economy. And so, for example, if you go back and look at Eugene Genovese's, one of his early books, before he, uh, this is when he was still Eugene Genovese the Marxist. Uh, Eugene Genovese uh, wrote a book entitled The Political Economy of Slavery. And the idea of that particular book, if you go back and look at it, I'm not sure if Mr. Carlton has ever read that book, um, but he discusses that you know, slavery was part and parcel of the political economy of the South. And so when you look at slavery or you look at tariffs or all these other things, they're, they're, they're a component of a bigger issue in the United States from the founding period up until 1860 and 61 when secession actually took place. And that is a battle over political economy. And I'm gonna I'm actually gonna point something out that's gonna I think conclusively prove this from a document from 1861. Mr. Carlton likes to show documents, and he he points out the secession documents. But there's often a document that's missed in this particular process, and I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about it. It wasn't a secession document. It came out uh, in the spring of 1861 after the Confederate government uh, had uh, been formed, and and uh, they were. Uh, instituting policy. Something had, had been produced by that government, which I think conclusively proves that there was a larger picture at stake here. And I'm going to talk about that because I think he misses this over and over again, the larger picture. So it's political economy, not tariffs themselves. That's a simplistic way of reducing something which is much larger that we don't need to do. The other thing, of course, is power politics. Why would political economy be important? Because of political power. And I think Michael Holt has shown this conclusively through his work, The Political Crisis of the 1850s, that all of these issues, all of these issues, you can take tariffs, you could take slavery, you could take uh, internal improvements, which is part of political economy, you could take banking. All of these issues are part of a much larger subject, which is political power. And again, I'm going to talk about that one document from 1861 that I think does a nice job explaining that. So political power is the key to understanding the cause of the American Civil War, as as Carlton says in the tariffs, uh, I'm sorry, in the, uh, in the title here. Uh, it wasn't tariffs, but a political economy. It wasn't tariffs, but political power. And the dispute over who would control the Union that led to the quote-unquote American Civil War, which it wasn't really a civil war. Again, from the beginning, his title is, always, is also uh, incorrect. There was no civil war here. You could say there might have been a civil war in certain parts of the United States, but this is not a war over the control of the central authority uh, at all. That's a civil war. This is a war for Southern independence. So from the beginning, his title is, is wrong, and his position is too simplistic. And so I'm going to correct a few things in this particular piece uh, and get into this idea and show you through this podcast where the issue is larger than just tariffs, its political power, its political economy. So first I want to correct a, a couple of interesting mistakes that he makes in this piece. That's um, Number one. He says uh, in the paragraph, the Tariff in Southern Secession, the first paragraph under that heading, he says, South Carolina passed a Nullification Act. This is incorrect. South Carolina didn't pass a Nullification Act. They met in convention, and a convention of the people nullified the Tariff of Abominations, or at least the 1832 Tariff, which was passed after the Tariff of Abominations. Um, and so it was a convention of the people that nullified the tariff. And it's also a convention of the people that nullified a force bill. So this was not an act of the South Carolina legislature, but an act of a convention of the people of South Carolina. There is, a, a, there is an important difference to be made here. Because what South Carolina had decided is that only the people of the state could then do this type of act, that a legislature could not. It had to be the voice of the people, and so conventions were used. So this is always uh, something that people get incorrect. It was a convention of the people of the state of South Carolina that nullified the tariff. And then he points to, um, he says, well, yeah, so the tariffs were a major bone of contention between the North and South. At least he says South Carolina uh, here, that kind of implying that none of the other southern states really considered tariffs to be that much of an issue. And I, I take issue with that particular idea because you can go back to the founding period. You can go back to George Mason and his insistence in 1787 and 1788 that the Constitution prohibit navigation laws. What are navigation laws? They're tariffs. And why did he want those to be prohibited? Well, because he was concerned that the North would tax the South out of existence, because the North, being a carrying section, as he called it, a commercial section, shipping, was going to try to insist that, that taxes be levied on the South that would help the North, help their commercial enterprises. And, of course, these would harm the South. And you go back and look at other issues in this particular period of time, you can find that even Hamilton's program of tariffs was resisted by Southerners, more than any other section, we do find that tariffs were an issue, and I've talked about this in in another podcast, you know, tariffs as an issue in American history. Uh, Tariffs had been an issue, North and South, for several reasons. In fact, even some in the North didn't like tariffs. Daniel Webster himself had thought that tariffs, protective tariffs, were unconstitutional in 1812. And there was a, uh, when, when the Embargo Acts were passed, and of course, Virginians had resisted the idea that protective measures were in some way constitutional. So this is an issue that had been around for a long time from the founding period forward. And so so to say that South Carolina was simply taking a position that was unique in 1832 is ignoring a large swath of American history. But then he says, look, Calhoun was actually opening the, the door to what he really meant in a letter that he wrote to Virgil Maxey in 1830. And this was two years after the passage of the Tariff of Abominations and also after Calhoun had written the South Carolina Exposition in Protest. Um, and he's, he, he cites this letter, and this is actually the Freeling thesis. So he's Carlton is, is advancing the William Freeling thesis that Tariffs were actually a disguise for the real issue, which was slavery. And so let me, let me quote what Calhoun said in this letter. He said, he said, quote, I consider the tariff but as the occasion rather than the real cause of the present unhappy state of things. The truth can no longer be disguised that the peculiar domestic institution of the southern states and the consequent direction which that and her soil and climate have given to her industry has placed them in regard to taxation and appropriation in opposite relation to the majority of the union. Okay, so that's one thing Calhoun said. Now, from that, Carlton pulls out that it was only slavery that Calhoun was talking about here, but he's, he's missing the entire quote. The, the peculiar domestic institutions of the southern states, which he is talking about slavery, and the consequent direction which that and her soil and climate have given to her industry. So he's saying, look, yeah, slavery... Uh, the, the fact that we are a slaveholding section engaged in agriculture, engaged in agriculture, that our soil and climate has made our primary industry agriculture has put us in opposition to the majority of the Union. Meaning that we have an agricultural South. We have an agricultural South which is being threatened the political economy of the South is being threatened by a different type of political economy, which was Hamiltonianism, later the American system of Henry Clay. That political economy is being threatened. And Calhoun actually recognized this when he started advocating that the South adopt uh, advocacy for things like federally funded internal improvements. Because he said, look, if we don't do that, if we don't do that, The West is going to align with the North because we're talking about now that they would be naturally sympathetic to the South because they're an agricultural section. But we are opposing federally funded internal improvements on constitutional grounds, no doubt. We're opposing those, but ultimately that's going to drive a wedge between the agricultural sections and it's going to move this agricultural West into an alliance with an industrializing commercial North and that is going to split what is a natural alliance of agricultural interests meaning political economy even though they were not slaveholding states calhoun's position was we need to adopt one thing that will that that the one thing which was uh, federally funded internal improvements which is what the west wanted the one thing that will keep them in our pocket why did the south want to do this not because they were concerned in 1830 about the north uh, going after slavery there was no i mean look we had we had the 1820 missouri compromise but as everyone recognized at the time the reason that slavery became an issue in missouri is because the north was concerned about its own welfare and well-being in the union and if it could somehow block the introduction of or the further introduction of slave states they could somehow maintain political power this is very clear with the hartford convention of 1815 when the Uh, Hartford Convention in Hartford, Connecticut, this convention of northern states, delegates from northern states, got together and said, you know what we need to do? We need to make it to where no new states are admitted to the Union, or at least it's very, very difficult. We need to cut out this three-fifths compromise because that's giving the South too much political power. The whole issue, the entire time, was political power. This is why Ellsworth and King cornered John Taylor of Carolina in a cloakroom in the Senate, five years after the Constitution had been, actually since the government, six years after the Constitution was ratified, but five years after the government was in effect, and said, look, John, this union's not working. We need out. The North needs to leave. Why? Because they could see that political economy, this North-South split over political economy, was going to render the North a minority section. Now, ultimately, the North became the majority section, so the South and its political economy was threatened. This is why Genovese also considered the South to be important as the one section, the one the one place that offered a lasting critique of Northern industrial capitalism. Not because these people were socialists, and that's another thing Carlton gets wrong. Uh, he did a podcast on uh, Fitzhugh's uh, Southern sociology, uh, or sociology of the South, where he uh, talks about uh, quote-unquote uh, uh, so, so socialism, excuse me, uh, and how the Southerners were just socialists. It was a and, and he uses, of course, Fitz, he uses that term, but he he's not understanding the entirety of that particular position. Uh, and this is why, you know, Calhoun has been called the Marx, of the master class and all these other things. So but it was this agrarian critique of northern industrial capitalism. And when you get to labor, which is what they're talking about, and what which type of labor is better, and so I mean that's that's a whole other debate between North and South, but still, it was tied into this idea of political power. So, here we have uh, Calhoun saying that it's it's. It's political economy. It's not just slavery. And, and, of course, Carlton reduces it to that. He says, quote, at least in Calhoun's view, it is clear that the institution of slavery was threatened by northern anti-slavery schemes such as colonization. Uh, no, he's not saying that th- slavery is threatened by colonization. He's saying that their domestic institutions, quote, exhausted by colonization and other schemes and themselves and children reduced to wretchedness. Uh, Now, Calhoun uh, was certainly no fan of colonization. Why? Because that was their labor system. (laughs) So taking out their labor system would reduce their political economy to uh, wretchedness. In other words, it's going to impoverish the South going to impoverish the South because their political economy would be wrecked. Not because slavery, the survival of slavery, was at stake. The labor institution was threatened. Now, he also says that some people have said slavery was dying out. I I don't think so at all. Not in 1860. Slavery was never better in the United States. In fact, you can if you look at, for example, the sugar-producing areas of Louisiana, people were making money hand over fist. The largest plantation homes of the antebellum period were built in the 1850s, the most elaborate plantation homes. People were making money hand over fist on sugar, and there's several One of them. The largest plantation home in the South was built in the 1850s, finished, I think, right around 1860. It was called Bell Grove, and it was in Louisiana. It was a huge home. Southerners were making a lot of money on slavery, the wealthiest sections of the country in the United States in 1860 were in the south. Natchez, Mississippi was the wealthiest district in the, in the entire United States in 1860. So people were making money hand over fist. Slavery was not an institution that was dying out. And so that coming from that position skews how you think about the debate over slavery in the Union. He says, quote, the second problem with this argument is that the dying out of slavery was explicitly a motivation for Southern Southern action to protect the waning institution. That's simply not true. That's not true at all. Southerners weren't concerned about the institution of slavery dying out. Hardly. The reason they wanted to admit or at least have slaves brought into the Western territories and the reason they were looking to expand and, and add slave states was a battle over political economy. Slavery itself wasn't dying out, but the idea was that somehow the South was going to be taxed to a point where the political economy could not be supported any longer, where we would have to have central banking and federally funded internal improvements and high protective tariffs, et cetera, et cetera. That the South would be, would be forced to fund an industrializing North through uh, its share of taxes, which they consider to be higher than anywhere else. Carlton misses all of that. This is about political economy, the larger picture of political economy. Again, he's reducing this, and he's making some statements that are simply not true. And this is Michael Holt's position in the political crisis of the 1850s, that you take all of these issues together, and you say, okay, what we have here is a battle over political power. You can find it over and over again. This is the podcast I did on why slavery. Why was slavery actually important? It wasn't about the uh, and and again, again, I'm going to cite a document. I, I'm going to get to that. I haven't, I haven't lost that yet. Uh, it wasn't because Southerners or Northerners were addressing the humanity of slavery. What they were concerned about was um, political power. They were concerned about uh, the fact that if you if you do not allow the addition of slave states, the South is going to be rendered to a political minority. And it can't block any longer the industrializing or the schemes of the North to control the government and to tax the South out of existence. The same exact thing that George Mason feared in 1787 and 1788. Now, another uh, part which is odd to me is where um, Carlton talks about the Kansas issue of the 1850s. And he says, quote, Most significant was the small-scale war that took place in Kansas during the 1850s known as Bleeding Kansas, in which pro-slavery border ruffians from Missouri agitated for slavery through violence, which drove many anti-slavery activists like John Brown to respond in kind, and voter fraud to establish a pro-slavery government. This is completely, this is a a strange statement indeed. To think that somehow, the men from the South, and there were, uh, for example, coming out of Ufalla, Alabama, there were uh, societies set up to populate Kansas, was Southerners to ensure that you would get a pro-slavery constitution of Kansas. At the same time, though, you had the New England Immigrant Aid Society, which was doing the exact same thing, and not only that, sending weapons into Kansas that were called Beecher's Bibles to insinuate that John Brown was only doing this because pro-slavery people had agitated for violence is to, is to completely uh, miss the fact that John Brown was absolutely insane. I, I I can't get this, um, that John Brown was only motivated because there were pro-slavery people. John Brown was a maniac, and people in the North, most people in the North, rightly saw him that way. The only real violence in Kansas was the murder at Pottawatomie Creek, which you can't say this was somehow uh, a border war, a small-scale border war. No, that was a homicide. So this is a strange position to take. That somehow a homicide is justified because some pro-slavery people moved into Kansas. And to say that the Kansas Constitution was was, uh, established through voter fraud is to miss the entire position. The first Kansas Constitution, also also known as the Lecompton Constitution, was ratified. The people of Kansas were given three different choices. And the anti-slavery people refused to show up to vote for that constitution. And so they got the most uh, pro-slavery constitution of the choices because the pro-slavery people showed up and voted. Now, the question as to why these people didn't show up is interesting. There's no real definitive answer. Um, One of the the speculation is that uh, these people didn't show up because they wanted to push the issue like this. They said, look, if we don't show up, we're going to say this constitution is illegitimate. And then they had another vote on a constitution, and the pro-slavery people said, no, we're not showing up because we already have a constitution. And, of course, that constitution was anti-slavery. And this is why you had the debate in Congress. So Carlton is reducing the issue and making it just a caricature of what it really was. There was no voter fraud involved here. He also says that uh, he also portrays Brown and others as anti-slavery guerrillas. That's a, Where is the uh, where is the homicidal maniac John Brown, which is what he really was? I mean, even when John Brown went into Harper's Ferry, the first person he killed was an African American. <laughs> uh, and no slaves came to his aid. John Brown was a homicidal maniac. Nothing but. And so it's curious that Carlton seems to have this affinity for John Brown. I think that's a very dangerous position to take. Now, uh, going through the going a little bit further in the piece, and uh, you know, getting to some of the other points, uh, he says that it's hypocritical for South Carolina to oppose the nullification of the Fugitive Slave Law, and this is a huge issue because South Carolina supported nullification in 1828 and 1832. This is a huge issue because people get this all wrong. Now, this is a political question. The one thing I will say to reduce it down in simple terms as I can and not spend a whole lot of time because I've already been in this this, this show for a little while is to say that South Carolina and the other southern states were uh, opposed to northern personal liberty laws because the Fugitive Slave Clause of the Constitution made the Fugitive Slave Acts constitutional. You see, you can't nullify something that's in the Constitution. And so we can dispute whether uh, a protective measure is authorized by the Constitution. It's just still a political act. But the fact is, the Fugitive Slave Clause in the Constitution authorized the general government to pass legislation that would allow for the general government, for, for the uh, federal marshals and others, to collect slaves. And that if the states resisted that, they were violating the Constitution. Now, we can talk about whether that's a good law or not, whether it's a moral law or not. Obviously, in the 21st century, collecting slaves is immoral and unjust. But in the 1850s and 60s, or 1850s and 40s and 30s, this was part of the Constitution. And so if the North was not following the Constitution, they're violating the Constitution. So to, to say that somehow South Carolina was being hypocritical and, and uh Uh, criticizing the North for their personal liberty laws is is not understanding the Constitution. Uh, This is something that I find to be a problem with this uh, position where uh, the uh, personal liberty laws were somehow constitutional. Um, Now, we can talk about commandeering should the states be required to use their own resources to acquire fugitive slaves. We can say that, well, I mean, uh, that is... Not constitutional. Uh, the states don't have to do that. They don't have to use their own resources to do it. The federal government could be required to do it, but they can't block the federal government from doing it either. And that is an issue. So I could do a whole other podcast just on that particular issue. But I want to get into this document that I mentioned that uh, I think proves, in many ways, the exact opposite of what Carlton is talking about. Now, this particular document was published by the Committee of, on uh, Foreign Affairs, and that would be the Confederate Committee on Foreign Affairs, in May of 1861. And so this particular document, it's, it's, it's quite long, but they get into um, what the major issues were between the North and South. And this document was inti- was intended to be an a explanation of the differences between North and South for the world to see. This was going out to foreign governments. Um, and so at the beginning, this, this document was actually written by Robert Barnwell Rett. So at the beginning, Rett says, The contest between the Confederate and the United States is not merely a contest of war. Wars too often to determine nothing. But which nation is the strongest or bravest? This contest is a contest for constitutional government, in which the interests of all mankind are concerned. The real issue, he says, involved in the relations between the North and the South of the American states is the great principle of self-government. Shall a dominant party of the North rule the South, or shall the people of the South rule themselves? This is the great matter in the controversy. And he goes on, while it's the North, the stronger section of the Union, was not united in using its power in Congress, the Southern people tolerated the Union with them. Although a sectional minority, they were not necessarily ruled by the majority section. However, despotic were its principles until that section became united in the use of its sectional power. Again, political power. That Union was affected in the late presidential election. On the fiscal operations of the government and the laying and the expenditure of the taxes, they were previously not sufficiently united completely to rule the South. The party weight of the South and the ability and skill of its public men kept them at bay. whilst well, the people of the Northwest being like the people of the South and agricultural people were generally opposed to the protective tariff policy, the grand sectionalizing instrumentality of the North. So here we have an explanation of political economy. There were allies of the South to defeat this policy. Hence it has been only particularly and occasionally successful. To make it complete and to render the North omnipotent to rule the South, the division in the North must be healed. To accomplish this object and to sectionalize the North, the agitation concerning African slavery in the South was commenced. This institution was purely sectional, belonging to the South. Antagonism to it in the North must also be sectional. The agitation would unite the South against the North as much as it united the North against the South. But the North, being the stronger section, would gain power by the agitation. So again, what Red is explaining here is something that had been going on since the 1820s, as I mentioned with the Hartford Convention. To bring up the slavery question was to mask the real issue, which was political power. Accordingly, after the overthrow of the Tariff of 1828 by the Residents of South Carolina in 1833, the agitation concerning the institution of African slavery in the South was immediately commenced in the Congress of the United States. It was taken up by the legislatures of the northern states, and upon one pretext or another, in and out of Congress, it has been pursued from that day to the fall of 1860, when it ended in the election of a president and vice president of the United States by purely sectional support. The great end was at last obtained of a united North to rule the South. The first fruit, the sectional despotism thus elected produced, was the tariff lately passed by the Congress of the United States. By this tariff, the protective policy is renewed in its most odious and oppressive forms, and the agricultural states are made tributaries to the manufacturing states. This is entirely true. (laughs) He's talking about what happened after the South essentially left the Union, that the North passes very high protective measure. By this tariff, I'm sorry, I just said that, has revived the system of specific duties by which the cheaper an article becomes from the progress of art or the superior skill of foreign manufacturers, the higher is the relative tax it imposes. And he gets into that issue. He says, This tariff illustrates the oppressive policy of the North towards the South and abounds in high taxation by specific duties. It is a war on the foreign commerce of the country, in which the Southern people are chiefly interested. Exclusively in agricultural people, it is their policy to purchase the manufactured commodities they need in the cheapest markets. These are amongst the nations of Europe which consumed 5 sixths of the agricultural products of the South. The late tariff passed by the Congress of the United States was designed to force the Southern people by prohibitory duties to consume the dearer manufactured commodities of the North instead of the cheaper commodities of European nations. What is this but robbery? Does it not take from one citizen or section and give to another? The foreign trade of the United States has always been carried on by our agricultural productions. Our exports are the basis of imports of the United States. Upon what principle of justice or uh, of the Constitution have the people of the North intervened between us and our natural customers and forced us by the use of the federal government to consume their products? Shall we not have the right to deal directly with those who consume our agricultural productions and who, in return, can supply us with their cheaper manufactured commodities? Etc. 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 And he goes on and says the tariff alone would have been the ample cause for a separation of the southern from the northern. The, the reign of sectional oppression and tyranny anticipated by the seceding states is fully inaugurated at Washington by the passage of this act. So he, he's laying out here, the, this committee on foreign affairs is laying out why, why tariffs and political economy were important. It's about power. It had always been about power. It had always been about one section reaping the benefits from another. And he mentions slavery and he says, yeah, slavery is an issue, sure. But why? Because it's masking the real issue, which is political power. he says from the commencement of the operations of the constitution of the united states the controlling part of the people of north have endeavored to destroy its limitations to make it sectional in its operations its uh subservient to their and, and subservient to their sectional interests and to make the government of the united states itself a consolidated government has been the aim of their steady and uh, of their steady efforts By the necessities of nature, their industry must be engaged in navigation, commerce, or manufactures. Among the first laws they obtained from Congress were laws granting them bounties and their fisheries by which an annual tribute has been obtained by their fishermen from the Treasury of the United States from 1789 to this day. They obtained a monopoly to their vessels of the whole coasting trade of the United States by which the southern people have been debarred from using the cheaper navigation of other nations. They have had discriminations in the duties imposed on importations in the vessels of foreign nations. So the people of the South may be compelled by the increasing duties laid on foreign commodities when brought to foreign bottoms to employ their vessels to import them. So again, he's getting into all of the reasons why the North has sought to control the government. He goes on to say the states composing the Confederate States needed no development of the nature of the consolidated government established by Washington by the late presidential election to satisfy them of its despotic tendencies. With the Constitution overthrown and the government of the United States in the hands of a hostile section, not only liberty but self-preservation demanded the separation from it. So the, (laughs) the idea that somehow... Economics were not at the heart of this particular issue, is to disguise. So you can say, "Yeah, well, the secession documents say the secession documents say they're they're uh, they're concerned about the institution of slavery." Well, why? Yeah, I mean, they're they're making a point in these secession documents: South Carolina, Mississippi, others, Alabama. Certainly, they're saying, uh, "Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the the North is hostile to the institution of slavery." Why was the North hostile to the institution of slavery? Why had the North done this? Why slavery? Why had this been an issue since 1820? Why? Why had it been an issue before that? Why was it an issue during the Philadelphia Convention? Why? If you go back and read the debates, it's because the South wanted to count slaves as one whole person towards representation because they were concerned about the North's taxing power. It came down to political economy and political power. Not the morality of slavery, not the humanity of slavery, Slavery was never more profitable than it was in 1860. It was not dying out in the deep southern states. That is one thing that I think some people often get wrong. It might have been dying out in places like Virginia. uh, But uh, they were making money in the South on it. So they weren't really concerned about slavery per se, even if it was confined to the South. They were still going to make a lot of money. But the issue is they were concerned about what the effect of a unified North in taxing and control of the government would do to the South ultimately. They could say, well, they could abolish slavery. Lincoln never said he was going to do that. No one ever said they were going to do that. Uh, And so that was not really an issue. In fact, the South Carolina document says that it's true that they've, they've said they're not going to do this. But when you look at what the North was doing, Uh, in terms of political power, that was the real issue. So it's about power. It's about political economy. Tariffs is too simplistic to say, oh, it's about tariffs. It's way too simplistic. And I think that's the major problem I have with this particular piece. Uh, And it's cherry-picking some things that you need to have further context and also, uh, you know, the larger picture at hand here. So I hope this particular podcast, and again, I said very gently, I wanted to very gently refute this. I like Mises. It's a great institution. Uh, they do a lot of good work, and so this is not uh, something that, um, you know, I want to make a point that uh, I think Mr. Carlton gets some things wrong here um, that need to be corrected. Uh, and, of course, this has stimulated a lot of debate, which I think was the point. I mean, anytime you can have a conversation, that's an, that's an important thing. It's not that, uh, and like I said, I think his podcast is, is put together, his historical controversies Con- podcast is, uh, is uh, nicely produced and, and very slick but he gets some things wrong here that needed to be corrected. I'll see you next time on the Brian McKinney Show.